We do not know our Bibles as Christians. And so this resource is a resource given uh, from us to you to help you understand the Bible, to make sure that we're not only understanding what was written to us, um, but understand, excuse me, what was written for us, um, but that we know how to apply it to our lives. And so some of the messages will line up with the different parts of the book, but they won't all line up with that. And so if you want another copy of the book, they're available in the back, or if you want a copy for someone else, you can purchase another copy. If you didn't get a free copy and you're a regular attender here, please see me after service. We'll make sure to get you a copy of that. Uh, I don't want to shortchange anyone on it, but there are five different parts of this book. Um, and each of those, excuse me, there's six different parts of the book. I thought that was a mistake. Um, and last week, we really focused on part one, which is a foundational part. And there were four main points that we talked about last week that come out of section one. And that is, one, the Bible is a library, not a book. Two, the Bible was written for us, not to us. So you and I cannot pick up this book and read it as if it was written last week in the English language. It was actually written to a people sometimes up to uh, 2,000 years ago or more, and we want to make sure that we're reading it as it was written to them and then knowing how to apply it for us. And that sometimes takes um, knowing the context, knowing the culture, knowing the language the Bible was written in. Number three, never read a Bible verse or never take things out of context. And then number four, all of the Bible points to Jesus. And so part one really wrestles with that foundation, how to understand the scripture, how to apply the scripture, how to know the context, the language, and the meaning. Uh, I recommended the, the Bible reading source, thebibleproject.com. Thebibleproject.com is an incredible website that has tons and tons and tons of resources helping us to be able to understand the Bible. Uh, as we talked about last week, there is nothing wrong with just reading the Bible devotionally and, and surface-level reading, but that is not enough. Um, we should not stop doing that, but we should not settle for that. We need to be people that dig into the Scripture, and I'm going to build on that in the message today. And then all of the other parts of this book, will, they're, they're kind of standalone. So part two deals with some of the Old Testament strange laws and how we should interpret them. Part three talks about the role of women in the church and the way that the Bible sometimes makes it seem like men are more important than women, and uh, we'll deal with that. Part four talks about the Bible and science. Um, the Bible and science actually go together very well. They do not contradict each other, and we'll talk through that one as we get to part four. Part five wrestles with, is Jesus really the only way? I'll be honest, when I got to part five, I was concerned. Um, if you're already there, maybe you already caught that. Um, but at some point, I was thinking like, he doesn't think Jesus is the only way. Uh, but I promise you, if you go all the way through part five, you will realize he does believe Jesus is the only way. Uh, he is trying to write the book to people who have left the church because they misunderstand the Bible. People who think God is mean or um, violent or just uh, hates women. And so that's the type of people he's writing to. Um, and so he's trying to present the gospel in a way that they'll hear it. And so I think that's why he went at part five that way. But I promise you, Jesus is the only way he will tell you that. Part six deals with the violence in the Bible. And so each of those parts, um, you could read by themselves. It's not like the book builds on its, its own. One is the foundation, and then the, all the other ones will stand on their own. So last week, we talked about discovering wholeness, 
and the idea of the process of discovery and uh, digging into the scripture. And it's not just about getting all the answers, it's about the journey. We talked a little bit about the, the Jews in this time period and their commitment to knowing the scripture and reading it at a surface level, but also going beyond that and digging into it. And as we do that, it creates a wholeness. We understand the whole story of the Bible, and it creates in us a wholeness, a salvation, a restoration. And so the challenge was to start putting more time into the Word, devotionally and as a student, digging into that. And I uh, gave some, some resources. You can go back and listen. So today, I've titled this Fulfilling the Law. Fulfilling the Law. And I just want to read one quote from uh, the chapters that we that go along with part two, and then I'm going to kind of go a different direction than he goes in part two. But in, in this section, this is what Dan Kimball, the author of the book, writes. In the first five books of the Bible, God instructed Moses to write down the history of the origin of the Israelite people. To teach them, it was God who created everything, not the gods of Egypt or other gods. He was making it clear he is the one true God. The other gods and goddesses of Egypt were not to be believed and not worshipped. He was giving the Israelites instruction for how to relate to each other and how to worship and relate to him. God wanted them to be holy, distinct from the people groups who lived around them. The word holy means set apart, separated, kept away from the evil and false worshiping worship of the neighboring nations. So in the book, he will go through a lot of the Old Testament laws. He will put them into categories, dietary laws and clothing laws. And he'll talk about the difference between tattoos for the one reading the Bible in its context and tattoos in our modern culture and whether or not there is a difference in that. When the Bible says, do not tattoo your body, what is it saying? What does it mean? And are people who are getting tattoos today, are they sinning? Well, you'll have to read the book to find that out because we're not going to talk about that today. So there is always more to learn in the scripture. Now, this week on social media, I read this wonderful meme, which by the way, if you've read the book, he really goes after some of these memes that are out there. Uh, and this is a very well-meaning meme, meme. And it said this, it's not what you memorize that matters. It's what you obey that matters. Talking about the Bible. Now, totally get it. Totally agree with it, but I also think it misses the point. Perfect obedience isn't possible. Let me just say that now. Um, that doesn't mean we don't strive to be more obedient, but it's not possible. Jesus is the only one who was perfectly obedient to all the law. None of us will ever live up to that standard. So to tell people to, in essence, stop memorizing the Bible and just start obeying the Bible... I think it's never wrong to memorize the Bible. Never. Because the only way the Holy Spirit can draw it out of us or help us make sense of the whole book is if we put the book in us. And so once you memorize parts of it and then you start reading somewhere else, what you've memorized over here will come back to your mind and you'll be like, whoa, is that what, does that make this mean this? I promise you, this happens for me all the time. And it's like, wow, this is such a complete book. So I get what these well-meaning people say, but I want to encourage you, um, do not despise your imperfect journey that you are on with the Lord, and do not discourage others who are on an imperfect journey with the Lord. It's easy for us to look at other believers who are not living 
as good of lives as us and to discourage them. Okay? We sometimes see the flaws in other people and we don't always see the ones in us. But I guarantee you that most of us in this room have probably the same number of flaws. They're just not the same. And we tend to think that our flaws or our little disobediences are not as severe as the disobediences that other people are committing that we can clearly see. Yep, continue to work out your salvation together and encourage each other to stop sinning, but please, by all means, be careful how you present it so that you don't discourage anyone from being in the book. It doesn't hurt to be in the book. Get in the book. Okay, that's it. I want to look at a, a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5. The, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's three chapters of Jesus basically just laying out what I believe is the, the foundation of the gospel of the kingdom, if you will. And in the middle of the beginning of this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. Now, we have to understand, when you see the word law, a lot of times that's the word Torah. And I, I, I think, I, I just don't understand translations, because Torah does not mean law. Torah means instruction and it means teaching. Torah refers to everything contained in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Okay? In Genesis through Deuteronomy, there are 613 laws that are given. But the point of the Torah is not just to know what laws to do and how to behave. The point of the Torah is to know who God is, to be taught and instructed who God is, and how as the people of God we should follow him and obey him, and how we should live out life in a way that puts him on display. That's far more than what we get from the word law, so I, I don't always like it. When we think about the prophets, I want you to understand that when Jesus made this statement, what Jesus was referring to in the prophets is the book of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. The Bible for Jesus was the Torah, the prophets, the books that I've just mentioned, and then the writings. The writings would be the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, uh, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, and then it says ear. I'm guessing that's is not ear, but that's supposed to be Ezra. Nehemiah autocorrect sometimes does weird things to your notes. And then the book of Chronicles. Those were what they, they would refer to as the writings. So anytime you read through the scripture and you read Torah, that's what they're referring to. When you read prophets, that's what they're referring to. And when you read um, writings, that's what they're referring to. And you'll see all of them in the scripture. Now, if I went too fast, you didn't get that. You can Google Tanakh, Hebrew scripture and it'll pull it up and you'll see all of it so you don't have to worry. But within that, these 613 laws that are given are not just laws the way that we think of it. Not just, um, we have to wrap our mind around what is happening in this passage and we're going to unpack it a little bit more. Jesus then goes on in verse 18 and says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, which in Greek is called the iota, or the stroke of a letter. So sometimes even just the little dot that changes the meaning of a word. Not even the smallest stroke of a letter will pass from the Torah until everything takes place. What Jesus is saying is for you and I, the Torah is important. It doesn't mean that after Jesus dies, we can put the Torah away. 
The early church did not model that, and I'm going to show you we can actually learn things from the Torah that we don't learn because we don't study diligently the way maybe uh, Jesus himself would have. By the way, um, I believe Jesus knew all of the things he knew about the Bible, not because he was God, but because he grew up in a Jewish culture where they studied the Scripture. He laid aside his rights and privileges as God. He came to earth as a fully human person, also fully God, but he did not rely on his God-like attributes, his willingness to know. He was led by the Spirit, just the way humans like you and I are. He studied the Scripture just like you and I can. And so what Jesus attained to, you and I could attain to. In fact, he came to be the model for us. Now, unfortunately, he will be the only one who does it perfectly, but you and I can continue to strive to be more like him. So Jesus comes along, and he actually will use the non-law here in a minute to correct the Sadducees from the Torah. I'll show you what it means. But the Torah is not just concerned with us knowing how to behave. It's knowing who we have become now that we have put faith in Christ so that we can follow him, so that we can live like him. Can I tell you, right standing with God in the Old Testament has always been, just like the New Testament, by faith. Right standing with God has always been by faith. We have tons of verses in the New Testament that talk about Abraham was not justified because he kept the law. Abraham was justified by faith because he believed in God. When God came to the people at Mount Sinai and gave them the Torah, he's not saying, if you obey the Torah, then you will be in right standing with me. You are in right standing with me because you are my people because of Abraham's faith and because of your faith. If you put faith in me and come to me, here is the Torah. As my people who have put faith in me, this is how you should now live. No one is ever declared righteous by keeping the law. That's not the purpose of the Torah. The purpose of the Torah was to know how to live as the people of God that we have been called to be. He called his people out of Egypt. He brought them to himself and said, as my covenant people live like this, separate from the world around you. Yes, there were sacrifices to atone for their sins and their coverings and their mistakes, but we know from the New Testament that that couldn't cleanse their conscience. That, that couldn't give them power to change. That's why a new covenant came, not to replace the old covenant, but the new covenant came in addition to the first covenant to put the Spirit of God inside of us to cleanse our guilty consciences and give us power to actually now live as the people of God better than when we didn't have the Spirit. Wow, amen. That's some good stuff, Pastor Tom. I'm glad you are studying this. So when Jesus comes along, he says, I am here not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We tend to think of fulfill as a checklist. Jesus has come to do check, check, check. That is not what fulfill means. He is coming to bring out the fullness of the law. He is coming to show us how to bring Torah to life. That's what he's coming to do. Well, how do we bring Torah to life? <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the exact way that we bring the Torah to life. Jesus goes on in verse 19, Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Sounds like he's talking about works righteousness. He's not, I promise you. But whoever obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, whoever continues to try to build their house on his words, on that rock, those are the people, not the people who do it perfectly. Because again, 
There won't be any of them. Um, But the people who continue to get called back to that and say, yes, I need to come back to that standard, who don't just look at the word and say, well, I want to find a way to get around that one. But the ones who look at it and say, oh my goodness, my life has not been matching that standard. I need to come back to it. That's repentance. And that's what we've been called to do. I believe there's this expectation that you and I can continue to keep Torah. Not the same way that the Jews kept Torah. Okay, again, when the, the, when the early church is established, Paul, Peter, all of the Jews do not stop following Torah. They believe that Torah contains the identity for the Jewish people. So they keep obeying all of the laws. But they're clear that now all of the Gentiles that have been offered salvation do not have to yoke themselves to the law because the law was given for the Jewish people as their identity. But now all of us have come into the kingdom of God and there are certain laws that all of us should keep and they teach those and they show us as Gentiles what we should follow. A lot of them have to do with sexual immorality or idolatry and different types of sin. And so we're to keep ourselves free from those, not so that we are in right standing with God, but because we are in right standing with God. Because we've put faith in Christ, now this is how you live as the people of God. Which I think lines up with the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle and the Torah that we're going to talk to here in just a moment. One of my favorite authors is a lady by the name of Amy Jill Levine. She, uh, she's a Jewish scholar. She's, I, I believe she's actually Jewish. And she studies the Torah. She studies the Sermon on the Mount. She has written three books on the Sermon on the Mount. All of them are gold. But listen to this. One quote from her. How do we bring the law, the Torah, to life, to fulfillment in our own lives? Jesus' teaching from the mountaintop is a primer on that topic. Bring healing to those who suffer in body and mind. Be generous rather than stingy. Be grateful rather than resentful. Be poor in spirit and so recognize the gap between what you have and what others need, between the way things are and the way things should be. Be meek and don't lord it over others. Hunger for righteousness and feed the hungry. Be a peacemaker. Be salt that makes life taste good for everyone. Be a light for others. Be reconciled to each other. Love enemies as God's children. Trust God to provide. Paul states, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. When we fulfill Torah, then we will be fulfilled. Boom! That's like mind-blowing stuff right there. And the Sermon on the Mount is the call for us as believers, as followers of Christ, to live that out in our daily lives. Then Jesus goes on in the very next verse of Matthew 19. Okay, so shift back. Matthew 15, not abolishing the law. No one should stop obeying the law. Then he says this in verse 20. Boom. Here he is about to mic drop. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm so tempted to grab this mic and drop it, but I will not. And so we look at it, and we think, we tend to think the Pharisees were bad people. They were not. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. But this has more to do, and the people, the people of this day would have fully respected the Pharisees. So when they heard that, they would have been like, there would have been a collected gasp because no one could be more righteous than the Pharisees. They're the most righteous of all. But what Jesus is doing is he's shifting a mindset. He's not talking about the ability to obey all of the little parts that the Pharisees were saying to obey. 
He's talking about a way to interpret the law and then live it out. Jesus, back in Matthew chapter 16, says, be careful to his disciples. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we read the Bible, and a lot of times we think Pharisees and Sadducees are the same people. They're totally different. The Sadducees are, in fact, in Mark's gospel, it says, be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. The reason that Sadducees and Herod are interchangeable is because Matthew was written to Jews, so they knew who the Sadducees were, and Mark was written to the Romans, so they knew who Herod was. The yeast that Jesus is talking about when it comes to the Pharisees is a political yeast. Or, excuse me, the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the, the priesthood. They're the ones that are in charge of the temple and all of its sacrifices, and they are, at the time of Jesus, very, very corrupt. Okay, they, if you think like Chicago Mafia, you would not be wrong. That's exactly what the priesthood has become. They're into politics. They're into keeping power. They're into greed. They're into compromise. They're into lining their own pockets. Why do you think Jesus overturned their tables? Because they were gouging the people. And th there's a problem. There are righteous priests. If you remember Zechariah, who was the, the father of John the Baptist. He was a priest. But did you notice that he was called righteous? That's a very important phrase when you're talking about a priest because you have to verify that a priest is a righteous priest. If, if it would have just said Zechariah was a priest, we all would have known he was corrupt. But because he was a righteous man, we know that he was not corrupted by the system. So there are good people in politics. Amen. Okay, even back in Jesus' day. So the problem is the temple cannot be abandoned. The temple is vital to Torah and the people of God, but the people in charge of it are corrupt. And so the people, the, the Jewish people are kind of at odds not knowing what to do, but they keep bringing sacrifices because they're, they're kind of stuck, if you will. The interesting thing is Jesus spends three years of his life in the Galilee with the Pharisees. He spends one week in Jerusalem pushing on the Sadducees and he gets killed for it. And if you read the scripture, it's the group of the high priest, the chief priests, and those in the corrupt priesthood that actually put Jesus to death. That's who crucifies Jesus. We make this idea that Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the crowds are like, Hosanna, Hosanna, and then on Friday they turn on him and they're like, crucify. They're not the same crowds. The chief priest, the corrupt Chicago-style mafia, has gathered a crowd that will crucify Jesus. And that's who crucified him. Okay? Do not make that mistake. Now, Jesus gave them lots of ammunition to do it. He knew it had to be fulfilled this way. So he totally didn't have to die. He laid his life down. Okay? So it's not their fault. He submitted himself to that system to be crucified. So much powerful stuff there. We could talk about it. But what Jesus is saying is beware of the political spirit. Okay? Even today in our day and age, beware of the political spirit. There are good people in politics. There's a reason to be involved in politics. Beware of the political spirit. Amen. In Matthew chapter 22, however, the Sadducees come to Jesus. Whew, we got to keep moving quick here. The Sadducees come to Jesus. Oh, don't worry. I, I know where we're going. And they say, these, these guys, they don't believe there's a resurrection. The Bible tells us that right here in Matthew 22.1. They also, what we have to understand is, they only believe in the Torah. 
Okay, the, chief, the priests, they do not believe there's any validity to the prophets or the writings in the Hebrew Scripture. Torah only. Do you know why? <laughs> because the prophets in the writing would point out their corruption. And they think they're getting by just having the Torah. Uh, they are about to meet their match. I love this. And so they come to him with a question. And they're going to pose this question, even though they don't believe in a resurrection, that there's this lady and this guy, and the guy dies, and then the brother marries the lady, and he doesn't have a child, so the next guy... Because according to law, you know, you should fulfill your brother's line, and, you, they, and she has all these, they have all these brothers, and they all die, and there's never a baby. So whose wife is she in the resurrection? That's the story. This is what Jesus says. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Whoo! I love it. At the resurrection, listen, somewhere in the scripture, and by scripture, I mean Torah, because that's what Jesus is talking here at this moment. You should know people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but will be like the angels in heaven. Where is it, Pastor Tom? Oh, that's a sermon for a different day. I think I might know where it is, but I'm not really quite sure yet because I don't know my Torah as well as Jesus did. But Jesus is confronting them and saying, because all they had is the Torah. That's all Jesus is going to use. If you only want to have the Torah, okay, let's do it. But you should know that that's not the way things are going to work in the resurrection. Okay, then verse 31, I like this. But about the resurrection of the dead that you don't believe in, have you not read what God said to you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Boom. Bigger mic drop. The people, if you keep reading, the people are amazed. Jesus has just proven there is a resurrection from the Torah. You know why they hated him? Because <laughs> he made them look bad. He came at them in a way that they thought they were going to lose their political clout, their power, their money, their influence, and they were going to put a stop to this Jesus guy. And they did, <laughs> or so they thought, <laughs> but they couldn't stop Jesus anyway. That's beside the point. So he corrects them using nothing but the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Man, there's so much in there. Let's go to the Pharisees. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. What's that? The Pharisees are part of a group of people called what we would refer to as the Hasidim. The Hasidim are the righteous ones. There is a group of people that want to reject the compromise of the, the priesthood, the Herodians of this time. People that are, are basically what we would say is to getting into bed with Rome. They're compromising who they are as a Jewish people to have a better life for themselves here on earth. And this group of righteous people move north to the Galilee. Okay? There's also a group called the Essenes that aren't mentioned in our scripture because they spend all of their time out in the Judean desert um, just copying the scripture. Like that's all they do day after day after day. They just copy the, the scripture. Uh, praise God for them because I told you a few weeks ago when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found all of the time they spent copying the scriptures and it's helped us to know the, the scriptures better because of their dedication to the scriptures. So they may not be in our Bible, but we have our Bible because of them. Praise God for them. Okay? But this groups of people that are living up in the Galilee, okay, they're the righteous ones. They believe that strict obedience to the Torah, to the prophets, to the writings will actually bring the Messiah. So they have got to reject everything that is Roman, all of the compromise, and they have to be the people of God so the Messiah comes. You'll know one of those groups as the zealots. 
the zealots, were members of the Hasidim. They thought the way to overcome was to be true to the law. They were strict followers of the law, just like the Pharisees. Only they felt like they needed to kill the Romans. <laughs> but Jesus picked two of them to be his disciples. I don't know what to do with that because I don't think the zealots should be there. I think they're crazy. So if you're here today and you're packing, <laughs> you might be a zealot and Jesus would have you at his table. I'd be nervous around you, but Jesus would have you at his table. Okay? The Pharisees, however, are of the same group, but they think they're more peaceful. I would be a Pharisee. And the zealots and the Pharisees get along to some point, but we would also disagree on some points. So the Pharisees think if you just keep the law perfectly, the Messiah will come. And so their, their problem is the people who are not living right. And so they want everyone to learn to live right because if they help people live to the right standard, then the, the Messiah will come. It's, it's, it's in the book. And if we all start living right, the Messiah will come. We have to live right. Oh, they were so close. They were so close. So the Pharisees started to think, if we would make every house like a temple and every table like an altar... And so they start adding like the priestly rituals of, of hand washing and the types of people that could sit at your table. You can't have unrighteous people at your table. You can only have righteous people. Now we know we can't have Gentiles because that would throw off the kosher thing. But we can't even have sinful Jews at our table. We can only have certain people at our table because we have to, have, we have to be so perfect because we want the Messiah to come. Do you, I mean, we've, we're like the Pharisees are such bad people. They're not bad people. They want the Messiah to come. They want people to just start living right so that the Messiah comes. And so anytime the, you see that Jesus is at odds with the Pharisees, it is not because he's breaking Torah. He's breaking their interpretation of Torah, which includes some traditions that had nothing to do with Torah. And that's what Jesus is confronting. So when he says in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He is not talking about how they're living it out or how right they are. He is talking about a type of righteousness that the Pharisees lacked. It's a lack of compassion. The Pharisees valued rightness over relationship. All of the law, all of the Torah is summed up in two things. Love God and love your neighbor. You will see Jesus attacking this over and over and over. Look at Matthew chapter 9. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked, What is he doing? He's not being right. He should be condemning the tax collectors so they repent and they get right. So that they will come, so the Messiah will come. Oh my gosh, and sometimes I weep when I read this because the Messiah is at the table. And their desire for rightness is causing them to miss it. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and Pharisees? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire Mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the type of interpretation of Torah that Jesus is putting out there. Don't misunderstand me. I'll clarify this in a second, I hope. 
Jesus is not saying, don't tell anyone what sin is, compromise on sin, but he is saying there is a, a merciful righteousness that you have to use to interpret the law. It's not about being right. It's about being mercifully compassionate to bring people into relationship with God. Because what makes them right is the relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Don't try to get them right apart from that relationship. Why were the Pharisees going all over from the woes? They're going all over the place to, to earn a convert, but they're making them twice a son of hell. Because the Pharisees think that they're made right with God by their rightness. And they're never made right with God by rightness. Keeping the law was never a way to be made right with God. And that's why Jesus keeps pushing back on them. In Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees see the disciples eating, they're walking through the fields, plucking grain, eating it on the Sabbath, they're doing what is unlawful, not according to Torah, according to their traditions. Jesus says, from the prophets. Okay, you think you know what, you think you know what Sabbath is? Jesus is like, haven't you read what David and his companions did when they were hungry? Verse 4, he entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do. From the prophets, Jesus says, my disciples are just doing what David did. And you think David is high and mighty in God's list. He's teaching them. Wow, did any of us pick that up as we read that narrative? Nope, we just read right through that narrative and kept going about David eating the bread. Because we don't know Torah enough to know that we should stop there and be like, David is eating the bread. If we knew our Torah, we'd be like, whoa, we got to find out why he's allowed to do this. There is something here. This is a big deal. But we don't know our Bibles well enough to know that's a big deal. But thank God we have the Bible Project. <laughs> But Jesus is not breaking Torah. He's pushing it back. And he, he goes even further and he teaches them from the law. Look at this in verse 5. Haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet they're innocent? I tell you something great. In other words, there's a type of work that the law prescribes that could be done on the Sabbath that is the Father working. And we don't have time to talk about the Sabbath, but I wish we understood the Sabbath because if you trace the Sabbath all the way from Genesis 1 and 2 through the tabernacle and the temple and the outpouring on the day of Pentecost and Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you, we will get an idea of Sabbath that is not just about don't do any work on the Sabbath. It is far greater than that. It is about the God of the ages entering his, his rest, his temple, um, his rule and reign. I'm not saying we shouldn't take time off. Yes, we should. Absolutely, there's a principle there. But it's far greater than the principle we've dumbed it down to. There's so much there. I'll preach on that another day. Verse 7. Here's the, the key verse. If you, had not, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, they're like, your interpretation of the law is condemning people that are doing something that you think isn't right on the Sabbath, and if you understood, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned them. Any of us guilty of that? Ooh, yeah, the church world today, we are super guilty of this. And again, we're not talking about going all the way to that side where nothing is sin, do whatever you want. Nope, not talking about that at all. But we have a version of what we think is right. And we are called to live righteous, not right. I don't know how to make that make more sense, but I want to look at two more things. 
In Matthew chapter 1, verse 9, Matthew is defining this righteousness all throughout his book. And he starts in Matthew 1, verse 9, with Joseph. Joseph, Mary's husband-to-be, was a righteous man. That word righteous is being defined for us. Because if he was a Pharisee, if he was right, he would have shamed Mary, he would have divorced her publicly, he would have called her out, because we have to condemn the sin, because we have to be right, because we want Messiah to come. Even if that's at the expense of Mary. We want to be right, because Messiah only comes when we're right. Oh, thank God he comes when we're not right. Man, if he didn't come until we got it right, he never would have come. When we were his enemies, he came. Get this in your heart. This is not as an, an excuse to sin. This is an excuse to stop judging others. This is a call to true righteousness. So what does he do? He doesn't want to disgrace her, so he intends to divorce her, her quietly, righteously, mercifully. But not only that, when the angel comes to him, at his own shame, he marries her. Don't think that people didn't know about this. All of his life, Joseph was attached to the, the stigma of being an adulterer. We have hints of it all through the Scripture. But a truly righteous person recognizes, number one, that I don't need to humiliate others, and number two, I'm willing to go the extra mile even to risk my own reputation in life to do what is truly right. That's Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, we're introduced in the genealogy of, G of Jesus about Tamar. Go back and read the story of Tamar from Genesis chapter 38. But verse 26 of that chapter, Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, recognizes what's happening. And he says about Tamar, <laughs> she is more righteous, there it is again, than I, since I would not give her to my son Shelah. Now, Matthew is not just throwing Tamar in there. Matthew is not just calling Joseph a righteous man for no reason. Matthew is teaching us that Jesus is teaching about a righteousness that supersedes rightness. In John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, Jesus says the saddest words in all of the Scripture. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me and you refuse to come to me and have life. And the Pharisees were good at setting aside the, the actual interpretation of the, the law that Jesus came to show and to fulfill, which is a very compassionate, merciful interpretation. And it didn't match the Pharisees' rightness. And over and over he rebukes them. In Mark chapter 7, he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Moses said, the Torah says, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses his father and mother should be put to death. But you say, if anybody declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corbin, this gift that the Pharisees came up with that was devoted to God, maybe to line their own pockets, then you will no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. This you do, you nullify the word of God, the Torah, by your own tradition and you do many things like this. I think that we can be just as guilty of interpreting the Scripture in a way that actually keeps people out of the kingdom instead of drawing them in. I'm not trying to say we don't want to point. Let the Holy Spirit point out the rightness and wrongness as they come to Him. Because if, without the Spirit, they don't even know rightness and wrongness. Bring them to Him. Well, how can they know if they haven't sinned? We've all sinned. 
Every single one of us have sinned. It doesn't matter what the specific sin is. We've all broken God's law. We have all gone our own way. We've all been selfish. We've all done it our way. And He has called us to turn from that and come to Him. And He'll show us the way. But until we have that spirit, we won't be convinced of the right way. And I feel so many of us are just wasting our time trying to get people to live right without the Spirit. And there's a compassionate way to hinder this. I hope you walk away today believing that I believe there is sin (laughs) and believing that we're not just supposed to throw off everything and just do whatever, but that there is a way to interpret the law that is far more compassionate than maybe you and I have done in the past. In Matthew chapter 23, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read a few parts. Jesus pronounces a lot of woes on the Pharisees in this last moment. Woe to you teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You give a tenth or you tithe your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, which by definition would be to care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. I don't care if you tie. I don't care about your sacrifices if you're not being merciful. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, and you follow a camel. Verse 25, Woe to you teachers of the law of Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. You're focused on being right, but clean the inside Because on the inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You know, the acceptable sins in the church. It's okay to be selfish. It's okay to talk about people behind their back. It's okay to to have these, like, good Christian sins in our lives. Because, I mean, none of us are perfect. But those bad sins that everybody can see on the outside of the dish. And Jesus is like, no, you need an interpretation that starts by cleaning the inside of the cup so then the outside's clean. Don't just clean the outside. Because when you do that, you make people twice the son of hell that you are. Because you won't let me into the deep parts of your heart. That's what Jesus is talking about. We have interpreted the passages of Scripture about Sodom and Gomorrah to make it all about homosexuality. I've talked about this all the time. If you actually read the prophets, especially Isaiah chapter 1, Sodom and Gomorrah in the prophets were condemned not for homosexuality, not for sexuality in any way. They were in the book of Jude. So, sexuality is a part of what they're doing wrong. It's a violation of what God has said is good, and it's a part of it. But the church world has made it all about homosexuality. There's two things I want you to remember about Sodom and Gomorrah. One, God would have spared it for ten righteous. He doesn't need a majority, he needs a a remnant. That's what he needs. He needs a remnant. So be the remnant. Be the remnant. Because if there's a remnant, the Spirit of God will move across our nation and he'll convict people in in regards to sin and righteousness. He will do that. If we try to do it for people without the Spirit to get them right, man, we will spin our wheels. And we will look very hateful doing it. Be careful. Homosexuality is a sin. It's in the Bible. I believe it. I trace it. But what is being condemned in the prophets is the mistreatment of people. The lack of care for the orphan and the widow and the poor. The the lack of taking care of their workers and providing for them the way that they should. The greed, the self-indulgence, which I believe just leads to sexual immorality. And I think a lot of those sins of Sodom exist in the church today. 
and we dismiss them and we act like they're no big deal. And yet those things are called an abomination in the Old Testament just like homosexuality. There's a way to interpret the scripture that is a merciful righteousness because it understands how merciful he has been to me. Man, he has never treated me as my sins deserved. I am full of pride. I am full of greed. I am full of selfishness. I'm not even fully aware of all where it is because I'm a good person. I go to church and I read the Bible and I cover it all up. But I'm coming to a place where I say, God, you got to clean the inside of the dish. And you've got to help me not focus on the outside of all these other people's dishes too. Help me focus on the inside of the dish so that I deal with my life in a way that helps me see clearly how to deal with theirs. Remember, remove the, the log from your own eye to see how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not getting soft on sin. In fact, he's actually upped the ante. You think adultery's bad? Well, if you lust after someone, that's adultery. You think murder's bad? Well, if you just say to someone you hate them, or if you just gossip about them behind their back, murder. Ouch. God, clean the inside of the cup. My hope over these next few months, these next weeks, months, as we go through this book, as we go through this series, that we learn how to fulfill the law. That we're not content to just be surface readers of the scripture, that we're going to start digging deeper. And we're going to interpret it through Jesus, because this whole book points to Jesus. And we're going to let Jesus teach us about the Torah. We're going to let Jesus teach us about the prophets. And we're going to let Jesus deal with the inside of our cup, so that the outside gets clean too. From the inside out. And so, Father, I pray that you would take the things that I've shared today, Holy Spirit, and that you'd use them. You'd use these words from Dan Kimball, that you'd use things from the Bible Project or from from different readers or Bible reading plans that we're using this year, from the Bible Recap or whatever plan we're using. God, that you'd use it to shape us and mold us. God, I pray, create a humility. In fact, if you're in the room right now and you just say, I want a humility to understand the scripture better, just put your hands out in front of you right where you are. And so God, I pray that today you'd help us to begin to understand the scriptures in a greater way. Help us to carve out time. Forgive us for saying we don't have time to be in our Bibles when our screen time says otherwise. God, forgive us when our our schedule and our activities say otherwise. Help us to be a people that that want to be in the Word and that will get in the Word. God, we're going to increase our time in the Word. Holy Spirit, help us not to be crazy. Help us not to jump into the, the deep end of the pool and bite off more than we can chew in an unrealistic manner. But show us how to increase. Show us how to get into the Word. Show us when we pick up our phone or we turn on that show that, that you just remind us that we could take that 20 minutes and we could study the word. We could take that 20 minutes and we could just meditate on something that we've read that day. We could take that 20 minutes. We could call someone else in the body of Christ and say, hey, do you have time to interact with me over the scripture? We don't even have to do it face to face. Thank you for technology that enables us to be a part of, of, of the, the lives of people even when we can't even be in the same room with them. So forgive us for making excuses And help us to go deeper. Help us to realize there's a fulfillment of the law that is greater than what we've understood in the past. Help us to put down deep roots into your word and interpret it in a way where we're not right, but we're righteous. God, we want to be a righteous people. We want to be a righteous people.
Show us how to interpret, fulfill the law in a better way this week ahead. Only you can do that. Take the things that I've said that can be helpful. Take the things that Dan Kimball have said that can be helpful. Holy Spirit, bring those things back to our minds and help us to live out the Torah this week. Loving you and loving our neighbor. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all have been so patient today with me. Uh, Obviously, you know that the Bible is a passion of mine, so I do try to whittle these sermons down. Uh, That was my very best whittle. So, (laughs) um, so maybe they'll get shorter, but maybe not. Because when we talk about the way the Bible treats women, um, this is a big one for me too. I just feel like we've misunderstood some things and we've used it um, to treat people in a way that goes against what God has always been teaching. And so you're going to want to be here for that one as well or watch online. But um, if you, again, if you want a copy of the book, it's available on the table in the back. Offering baskets are out there for, again, Tithes and Offerings Global Outreach again. Thank you for your faithfulness and giving to both of those uh, throughout the year. You can always give online as well. And uh, our prayer team is always available even after service. If you want prayer for something and maybe didn't have a chance to be prayed for, we'd love to pray for you before you go today as well. So God bless you as you go. Thanks for being here today.